This is an ABC podcast. Have you ever thought about your own funeral? What music you want, if you want people to be wearing black? It's kind of grim to think about, but there's actually a movement for young people to normalise conversations around death and dying. Hey, Ange McCormack here, filling in for Dave Marchese on The Hack Podcast. And a bit later in this episode, we'll learn about this new site that helps you figure out stuff like your last wishes and who you want to be in charge of your Instagram DMs when you pass away. All of that's coming up on this episode. Plus, in a moment, we'll talk about why rental homes in Australia are so badly heated. So many of them are just so freezing. And we'll talk about what rights you have as a tenant when your house doesn't feel warm enough. Those stories are coming up on the Hack Podcast. Hack Crowther is not the only person who was involved in this field of racial science, but he's the only person who has a prominent celebratory statue. On Triple J. Should racist statues be removed? In the past few years, there's been a lot of debate around this. In some cities in the US and UK, protesters tore down statues of white supremacists themselves. And in Australia, a lot of our statues celebrate people from our colonial era, which is an especially dark time for First Nations Australians. A council in Nipaluna country, Tasmania, has been deciding on whether to remove a statue of a former premier who has a very dark past. And last night, the council voted to get rid of it. It's the first time this has been done in Australia. So, do you think more statues around the country should come down, or is there a better way to confront the disturbing parts of our history? Text me on this one, 0439 757555. Our reporter, April McLennan, brings us this story, and a warning for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, this story contains references to people who have died. In the heart of Hobart, there's this bronze statue of a man. And I've literally walked past this statue a billion times and thought, cool, we're celebrating another old white dude. But I've never actually stopped to give it much thought. Like, I didn't even know who the statue was of. But for Palawar woman Nala Mansell, every time she walks past this statue, she's reminded of some pretty horrific stuff. We've fought really hard in Tasmania even to be acknowledged as a race of people. Uh, So that statue is just a reminder of um, the injustices committed against my people and just how long um, the Tasmanian Aboriginal fight for recognition and rights has gone on. The statues of a former Tasmanian Premier, William Crowther. In the 1860s, Crowther, who was also a doctor, broke into a morgue and stole the skull of Aboriginal man William Lanny. He then sent it to a museum. Crowther replaced the skull with a random skull from another man to try and cover up what he'd done. As campaign coordinator for the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre, Nala says it's super upsetting that the statue's still standing. The William Crowther statue has no relevance to today's society. He did horrific things to Aboriginal man William Lanny. His grandson also um, was responsible for digging up the graves of 12 Aboriginal people at Oyster Cove. Last night, the Hobart City Council voted on whether the statue should be pulled down. During the debate, Lord Mayor Anna Reynolds said the council had to decide on whether they're willing to take a practical and meaningful step towards reconciliation. With our decision, we're saying that we're ready to have truth-telling to take prime position in our Premier Civic Square. And we're also saying that we 
don't want to celebrate uh, a time in our history when scientists and doctors wanted to prove theories of European superiority, um, who wanted to uh, rank people by their race. It was an appalling tradition, and as long as the statue stands there, um, Crowther does represent uh, that, that part of the scientific and medical tradition. Hobart councillors voted in favour of taking the statue down. <laughs> Nala was overwhelmed by the council's decision. The emotion of knowing that um, our elected leaders have finally had the courage to stand up and acknowledge uh, the past, acknowledge the injustices and acknowledge um, the hurt and trauma that these types of statues continue to have on the Aboriginal community today was just so refreshing. There's actually been growing conversation around controversial monuments. And Sarah Madison from the University of Melbourne says it all began in South Africa with the Roads Must Fall movement at the University of Cape Town before spreading around the world. The campaign was picked up by the Black Lives Matter movement in the US. It led to a series of Confederate statues being taken down. And in England, the statue of a Bristol slaver was thrown into the bay where the offensiveness of continuing to commemorate white men who have committed atrocities towards Indigenous people, um, people of colour, enslaved people, who are celebrated through statues that commemorate their quote-unquote good deeds um, in a very problematic way that don't situate the actions um, of those men in their proper historical context. While a statue of Captain Cook was removed in Cairns because his pose was deemed offensive, there's actually still other controversial statues of Cook right around Australia, including one in Hyde Park in Sydney. It has a plaque that says Cook discovered this territory, as if there weren't already First Nations people living across Australia already. But Sarah reckons the statue of Governor Lachlan Macquarie is even more problematic, as he was really violent in his invasion of Indigenous territories. And in fact, ordered that First Nations people be hung from trees um, after they were dead to deter other First Nations from protecting their, their country as the colony expanded. And yet the plaque on his statue reads, he was a perfect gentleman, a Christian and supreme legislator of the human heart. While Sarah says she can imagine the satisfaction of pulling these types of statues down and dumping them in the harbour, it might not actually be the best approach. I don't think that erases the history, but it does obscure it. It does mean that um, those actions, those, those criminal actions remain hidden from view. And I think the challenge for all of us now is to actually engage, to confront um, some of the, those worst aspects of Australian history. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan reporting on that story in Tasmania. On the Triple J text line, someone says, why is there even a statue of this guy in the first place? Someone else says, claiming history as a justification for keeping racist statues seems pretty poor. Statues aren't history, they're commemorative, and what they're commemorating should be scrutinised. Let's talk to Professor Greg Lehman. He's the Pro Vice-Chancellor of Aboriginal Leadership at the University of Tasmania. Professor Lehman, what did you make of this news? Um, and look, there's a whole lot of um, happiness and um, inspiration, I think, being felt across Aboriginal community in Tasmania at the moment. And I think you would have um, you would have heard that uh, from Nala. And um, you know, we're just so relieved that the councillors 
of the city of Hobart didn't miss what was a really massive opportunity to, um, you know, to take a nationally, internationally significant step on that road to truth-telling and hopefully, you know, a, a positive step towards treaty. Um, reaction to this today has been, you know, that this is a small, you know, symbolic but important step in the process of reconciliation and, and what you've been talking about there as well in terms of truth-telling. Uh, do you see it that way? And can you talk about how meaningful something like this is for reconciliation? Well, the first thing that it does, I think, is um, it makes a really practical demonstration that the the old colonial myths and histories are not untouchable. They're not sacrosanct. They they can not only they not only have to yield to critical examination, but they also have to yield to the perspectives of First Nations people who have been the silent voices in in Australia's colonial history um, for far too long. And that's, you know, that symbolically, I think, even though Crowther might be a fairly minor figure um, on the international stage, as the first major colonial statue to fall in, um, in, uh, in Australia, mm. um, you know, this, this really... Look, the people who are, who have opposed the statue um, being removed are going to hate me saying this, but you know it will open the floodgates. And as I think your listeners have heard in this article so far, you know there is there is a, a cavalcade of misdemeanour and and colonial horror that needs to be addressed. Um, Governor Macquarie is a very good example, but there's a whole lot more. That, that doesn't mean that we necessarily will respond to each one by pulling down statues. Mm. And, you know, I agree with Sarah Madison that, um, you know, this isn't about silencing history. We need to work out ways to ensure that that conversations are, are actually richer and more honest. Right. Yeah, that, that's really interesting to think about what this might spark. We'll get into that in a moment. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. I'm Ange McCormack. Uh, we're speaking to Professor Greg Lehman from the University of Tasmania, we're talking about this colonial statue that's been voted to be removed in Hobart. Um, Professor Lehman, in this debate, some people always argue, and, and you touched on it just there, that, you know, it's better to keep the statue up because to take it down would erase history. They say, you know, it's important to have the ugly parts of our history on display so we can learn from them. W- what do you say to that argument? Oh, look, as, as somebody who just texted in a little while ago said, um, you know, these statues are not themselves history. Um, um, statues are pulled down all the time. There are no statues to Hitler uh, to be found in Germany, but um, that doesn't mean that Hitler has been erased from from European history or world history. Um, statues are kind of they're more of a they're more of kind of like a punctuation mark in in the story of history. Um, and the statue of William Crowther was was put up. Uh, in my view, by his his friends and colleagues to try and defend his reputation in the face of the scandal that that um, that he caused in Hobart at the time. Um, you know, there's no mention of of the things that he was responsible for in terms of the abuse of William Lanny mm. um, on on his uh, on his statue. It just 
it just paints him as this um, this wonderful upright citizen. Which yeah, standing on a, on a plinth in a very, you know, heroic fashion kind of. Um, yeah. And what should happen, in your view, to the statue now? It's obviously being taken down um, and, and there's talk of, you know, keeping the plinth and the plaque up for educational purposes, I guess, to talk about that history, you know, the very gruesome history that um, William Crowther, you know, had on Tasmania and especially on William Lanny. I mean, yeah, what? how do you think we should approach the removal now? Where should the statue itself go? How do we deal with that? Well, the, the recommendation that's been put to the council by their cultural committee is that the, the plinth be retained. So presumably that includes the um, uh, the, the carved granite um, plaque, yep. which names up um, uh, Crowther. And the recommendation goes further to suggest that there should be an opportunity created for some other creative or sculptural installation at that site to to set up a you know a critical dialogue between between what was there before and what um, what people want to discuss today. Um, that doesn't answer the question though of what happens to to the statue that's removed yeah. from there. Um, so Coulson's statue in Bristol um, spent some time um, in the water. It was it was thrown in the water, but it was it was recovered and relocated into a museum. Now I've I've put out there the suggestion that that we should at least start the conversation by asking whether the Tasmania Museum and Art Gallery could see a place for that statue um, in one of its exhibitions. It already has excellent uh, permanent exhibitions which talk about contemporary Tasmanian. Aboriginal survival and also the Black War in Tasmania. Mm, it would give it that Norfolk. kind of context around it, right? Like in, in the setting of a museum, you have all of those, you know, educational resources around it or a guide to give you context, which is what uh, we didn't have when the statue was just sort of plonked in, in a Hobart, right? Exactly. It's a really powerful opportunity for for um, shifting the context and and transforming this thing from from a colonial horror to to a massive asset and um, you know the Tasmania Museum and Art Gallery has has a ready-made audience there are thousands of Tasmanian school children um, troops through that place mm. every year and and that's just a huge opportunity to open up the future um, the future of historical interpretation and perspective to younger generations who, who are the ones who are going to have to live with this stuff. Yeah, really interesting stuff. On the Triple J text line, Tish in um, Melbourne says, can we have a statue of Archie Roach? I think lots of people would be very on board with that suggestion. Um, that, that's all we've got time for for that segment, um, Professor Greg Lehman. But thanks so much for chatting today. It's about a really important and fascinating day. No worries. Thanks, Ange. That's Professor Greg Lehman there from the University of Tasmania. Hack. There's growing evidence that the cold is more damaging to our health than hot weather. On Triple J. What's the first thing you do when you get home during winter? Lately, I've been kind of jumping straight into a hot shower, putting on at least three layers. That's how cold my rental home is. I know I'm not the only one, though. This is a really big issue for people who rent around Australia. If that's you, I want to know, has your landlord ever done anything about it? Call me, 1300 or text in 0439 757 The thing is, renters like me aren't just soft. New research out today says that the average rental house in Australia gets below 18 degrees for the majority of the day. 
18 degrees isn't freezing, I know, but the World Health Organization recommends that temperatures, that that temperature is the lowest a house should be, basically. Otherwise, you start having health issues. Um, Joel Dignam is the executive director of Better Renting, and they did this research. Joel, thanks so much for chatting. How badly heated are Australian rentals? What did you find out here? When you do heat them, they're still pretty badly heated because they're so drafty, they're so uninsulated. The heat's going out every which way. Some of these sweet heat these homes in the first place. Oh, I think your, your line there is a, is a little bit dodgy, Joel. We'll keep going and see how we go. Um, Joel, you, you looked at homes around Australia. Which, which cities were the worst? So we found that Tasmania and the ACT um, were some of the worst performers in terms of temperatures, so below 18 degrees around 90% of the time. So that's pulling in Canberra, but we also had people in Hobart and around Launceston. Yeah, right. And, and you mentioned there, you know, that the homes are, are drafty themselves a lot of the time in rentals. Was that the biggest issue, that the homes themselves aren't equipped to deal with winter? Or is it also that tenants can't afford to put the heater on because, you know, rents are going up, energy bills are going up, that sort of thing? It's sort of the interaction of these two things. The, the homes themselves are really inadequate. I think we need to keep a focus on that. It shouldn't be assumed that it's normal to be spending so much to heat homes in winter. But certainly an inadequate home is even worse when you are struggling to afford the heating bill. But we did have people who would run the heaters and it was still cold. They just couldn't get the home up to a decent temperature. Yeah, right. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. I'm Ange McCormack with Joel Dignam from Better Renting. Um, Joel, you know, some people will be like, you know, is this just young people complaining about being cold? We should just, you know, put on extra jumpers or whatever. But what are the health impacts of living in a really cold home or a home that isn't heated enough? Yeah, it's, it's really a health issue and what you do see is it affects people in a few ways. So people who might have pre-existing health conditions or be older, we're concerned about impacts on cardiovascular health, so higher blood pressure and the effects that can have on the heart. But all along the spectrum, you're dealing with things like a compromised immune system and worse, mental health too, from having to live in a cold home. And people aren't sapped, you know, like they're putting on jumpers, they're wearing beanies, they're dressing for a day at the ski fields, but it's still not enough. Yeah, we've had people on the text line saying they have two Audis in rotation or something like that. Um, Steph from Melbourne, you've called in. How cold's your place? So every time you breathe in our house in winter, you can see frost coming oh. out of your mouth. No. So... I- so I've got two Udis on rotation that uh, that I wear. So I wear one while the other's drying because they take about a week to dry. Oh, my gosh. And mm-hmm. have you have you gone to your landlord, Steph? Like what has it gotten? That sounds like a totally terrible and unlivable situation if you've got frost coming out when you breathe out. Like have you raised it with your landlord? Um, so what's happened is it's actually created a huge mould problem in the house. Oh, God. So we're, uh, we're moving out in a couple of weeks. Yeah, right. That's, I mean, Joel, is this kind of situation with mould and the, um, the cold and landlords clearly not really listening, a, a really common one like Steph? Yeah, the mould's been a really big issue. And I think some listeners will probably have had somewhat patronising emails from real estate agents telling them what they should do to deal with the mould when really this is caused because homes are too cold. And these mould issues have probably been happening for years, no matter who's living there. So it's, I think, an issue where we do need to see landlords acting, taking a bit more responsibility, basically, because they're the ones who can make changes to the property.
Thanks so much for calling in, Steph. Um, Joel, what should someone like Steph or anyone else listening who's got this problem do? Like, how should they approach that a conversation that conversation with their landlord? Sometimes you feel pretty powerless as a renter. Yeah, and to be honest, I'm reluctant to tell people they should contact their landlord because of the risks that do exist around potentially seeing a rent increase or even losing right. a tenancy. I do think, though, your options are if there is something, it should be repaired. And even just creating a paper trail, maybe they don't do the repairs now, but that might be something you can come back to in the future um, around that. And in Victoria these days with new standards, there should be a heater. And from March next year, it should be an efficient one. So hopefully we're beginning to see the introduction of standards that will mean people can at least get a bit warmer in their homes. Mm, hopefully, because, yeah, it's pretty unbearable when you're sitting at home freezing on the couch. Um, Joel Dignam, thanks so much for, for bringing us up to speed with that research. My pleasure. Thank you. That's Joel Dignam there. He's the Executive Director of Better Renting. On the Triple J text line, someone says, even with two heaters running at night, my rental is only at 16 degrees. My energy bills are through the roof and more layers barely helps. Hack. To be honest, no, I've never really thought about dying or death or the risk of me dying tomorrow. On Triple J. How often do you have conversations about death? Sorry to break it to you, but we are all going to die someday. And as much as you might like to not think about it, there's some life admin, or should I say death admin, that you do kind of have to deal with. If this is something you've thought about, like what you want to happen to your stuff or money after you die, your funeral plans, who you want to be in charge of your social media accounts, let me know, 0439757555. This might seem like something people your parents' age should be thinking about, but more and more people are saying you're never too young to do it. One woman in Queensland is coming up with an app to make all of this death planning easier, so let's find out about it. Hannah Walsh has this story. There were brief conversations about my family's death and what would happen if my mum or dad passed away and the situation that we would be in, but not for any of us in general and it's very passing conversations, uncomfortable ones probably. Hannah Petrowski has just left her family behind in Melbourne to start work as a nurse in regional Queensland. Like a lot of us in our 20s, the thought of writing a will seems pretty intense. Hannah says she's never really thought about her own funeral but knows she'd want more of a celebration with lots of dancing. But her family are religious and she's not. So she's not quite sure they'd have a clue what she'd really want at her funeral. I've never had that conversation with them. Um, And it would be something that I haven't thought about discussing with them. Growing up comes with heaps of responsibilities, figuring out a career, paying bills and being booted from your mum's Medicare. But for some reason, learning about death and dying is something we don't really plan for, even though it's one thing we all have in common. And it's close friends and family that are left to pick up the pieces and debate about what a loved one would have wanted. Nobody wants to talk about when you die. For lawyer Della Musket, helping people through this is something she wants to turn into a full-time career. I think it's a social responsibility, I really do. And and I think the dialogue I want to create around this is we need to get ready for it. Della's had her fair share of dealing with death. As a girl, she nearly lost her dad in a car accident. And then when she was in her late 20s, two of her really good mates died. And they were so young. One death was um, from, from ovarian cancer, one was a tragic car accident. She remembers constantly wondering, is this what they would have wanted? And seeing the difference in those type of funerals and the decisions that were left made for my friend that had died suddenly, and it was just so difficult. Della remembers this conversation with her best friend Gemma as they sat on her deck drinking wine and joking about their plans for death. 
no one knew Gemma would be dead within a month. I want all of my friends, you know, dance around, have like lots of drinks and laugh and then, you know, cremate me and keep me in an old school Mexican tequila bottle and giggled and she said the same thing, that she wanted to be cremated. And then four weeks later, she died in a car accident. It's a bit of a bleak reminder. Anything can happen. But how would you feel about writing a will? Or what about writing down your wishes in some kind of app? Well, over the past year and a half, Della's poured her life savings into creating what she calls After Me. The website, which she hopes to make into an app, is a safe space to jot down some wishes or instructions. Whilst After Me does not purport to be legally binding um, and isn't designed to be a will, there is a lot of that where you can record your wishes so that your family members and your loved ones can make those decisions that you know you wanted to make. Dr John Rosenberg is a palliative care nurse turned academic. He thinks the procedures around dying in Australia is something that should be taught at school. If we're teaching civics at school, if we know, if we learn how to vote and we learn how our government works and those sorts of issues, then this would fall beautifully into that kind of learning space. He says it's called death literacy. There are just a whole lot of things that we need to know about when we are leaving school and entering into uh, legally adult life. Certainly learning about uh, what's required, what responsibilities we have with uh, writing a will for ourselves, writing an advanced care plan so that other people know what our wishes are if we're not able to make decisions for ourselves. Della Musket reckons as you become an adult, you're never too young to make a plan and let your family and friends know exactly what you want. I think for the first time in the world, we're all questioning our mortality, regardless of our age or health status or wealth status. There was this disease, this illness that could, could get you, you know, and, and, and we weren't ready for it. I don't know why we don't talk about it, because as sure as we are born, we will die. And that's probably the only two certainties in life, and that you'll pay taxes. Hack on Triple J. That was Hannah Walsh reporting there, produced by Angel Parsons. On the Triple J text line, Sam from Gadigal Land, you say, I definitely put the fun back in funerals with my funeral. Someone who's literally written a book on this is Lisa Herbert. She's the author of The Bottom Draw Book, which is all about fig- figuring out an after-death action plan. Lisa, thanks for chatting. Why should young people like my listeners be thinking about death? Hey, Ange. Well, the more we understand it, like death and death care and how funerals work and rituals and what we're allowed to do, the less fearful we become of it. So kind of like snakes and sharks, like once you start understanding them, you go, yeah, they're pretty cool. I don't want to meet you, but at least I understand you. Um, Lisa, on on the text line, someone says, I'm 28 and I have a Spotify playlist which I've made for my funeral. However, I haven't told anyone about it because I would feel odd and potentially worry my friends and family. That that brings me to my next question. Like, how do you start these conversations about your death and end of life without freaking people out? Yeah, that's a tricky one. You can either take a direct approach and make an appointment with your family if you're that kind of a front-up <laughs> okay. family and say, all right, Tuesday night, let's talk death over dinner. Yeah, put or, on the Spotify playlist. Here we go. Exactly <laughs> yeah. right. And just say, hey, this is a song I like, Gustav Punk. Yeah, I want this at my funeral and just see where that leads. Right. And it, and- work, it works both ways. Your parents might go, oh, okay, and this is what I want at my funeral. Mm, and the entry point can be something small, right, like songs and that sort of thing, and that could then open up to a bigger conversation about wills and all those other like sort of less <laughs> less glamorous bits of death, right? 
Yeah, totally. Stuff like, hey, I heard this chick, she's written a bottom drawer book and it's got heaps of information <laughs> about stuff. You know, or even, you know, we've seen Shane Ward and I, Young, use that. Oh, you know, I saw Warney's Memorial. I really liked how they did this and then reflect it that way into your family's conversation. And, and what are the most important things to think about when it comes to all of this planning? Is it all about the funeral or the will, or are there other little bits and pieces that I haven't even thought of? Yeah, it's a minefield. The biggest <laughs> thing is what happens before you die, and it was mentioned in the package that advanced care planning, it's like if you're in a circumstance where you survive that car accident, but you're in a position to speak, who speaks on your behalf? Like, do you want to be kept alive oh, or, wow. you know, just throw all medications at me? Or are you going, nah, just just the basics, let me die, load me up with painkillers. That's the important thing. It's called an advanced care plan or advanced care directive. But then once it comes to funerals, you don't have to plan your whole funeral, just a couple of things. The big thing is money. Let your family know, you know what? I want a cheap-ass funeral. I don't care about the flash stuff. I'd rather you take the money and all go holiday on the Gold Coast instead of spending <laughs> 10K on my funeral. That's the big thing. Give them permission to not spend a lot of money. Let them know if you want to be buried or cremated or even composted, for example, or dissolved right. like alkaline hydrolysis. And, Just and, give them a few tidbits. Right. And one more thing I think that's really important to mention is like tell someone, uh, make, make it clear who you want to take care of your digital afterlife, right? We don't have much time here, but that's a really important thing to think about as well, isn't it? Oh, it's crazy to think that Apple only addressed this last year. They've, they've got a thing on their app where you can nominate who gets to look at your files and what files they look at, but a minefield. But it's, if you want more information, drop me a line at the bottom drawer book. Lisa Herbert, thanks so much for chatting to us today about a very um, dark subject, but you're making it quite cheery, so thank you. And it's so important. And, yeah, look, pre preparing for the inevitable needn't be grim. Hack. On Triple J. That was Lisa Herbert there. She's the author of The Bottom Drawer book. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Hack Podcast. We'll be back with you tomorrow.